Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thanks for joining me today as we continue our tale into the vanishing of John Bingham, 7th Earl of Lucan. We're picking up from the last episode in one evening. All the tables have been turned on Lucky Lucan, who is lucky no more. He's going to pull a big old disappearing act, but as they say, it is good to have friends. Let's investigate. Dominic Dunwell write in his Vanity Fair piece, The Gentleman Vanishes. The closing of the ranks around the Earl of Lucan began immediately. Sometime between 4 and 8 a.m., the borrowed Ford was parked on a street in New Haven. According to Detective Chief Inspector David Gehring, it was not there at 4. It was certainly there at 8. The short distance between Uckfield and New Haven is at most a half-hour drive. Where was Lord Lucan between 1.15, when he left Susan Maxwell Scott's, and 4, or 1.15 and 8? Michael Stoops' blood-stained car, abandoned in New Haven, gave the clear impression that Lucan had left the country for France that morning. But there is no proof that he did, or if he did, that he left on the ferry. Detective Gehring thinks that the car may have been parked there as a ruse. As one of the many people I talked with said, of course someone knows something, they must. If indeed there is a secret, John Aspinall would know it. Anyone knows, he knows. But their mouths are zipped, and they're not going to get unzipped. You can count on that. Another said, it is one of those dark... It is one of the dark secrets that binds that group together. On the day following the murder of Sandra Rivet and the attempted murder of Lady Lucan, a number of Lucky Lucan's friends gathered at a hastily arranged lunch at the home of John Aspinall. Absent from the group was James Goldsmith, who was out of the country. The purpose of the lunch was to decide what to do if Lucky showed up on any of their doorsteps. Their telephones were off the hook. They were not available to anyone until they had a plan of some kind. One newspaper reported that the privileged group had lunched and whined sumptuously, but that was vociferously denied by all present, even in print by Charles Benson, who spelled out the measly fare served them by Aspinall. We sat around drinking rather ordinary white wine and eating cold meat and cheese from the refrigerator, plus some small portions of smoked salmon. I can't remember who had what, but it was a frugal meal. At the lunch, Benson reported, Aspinall said of Lucan, he must fall on his sword. That's the only course left open to him. Dominic Elwes came up with an elaborate scheme for smuggling Lucky out of England on a cargo ship to South America. An interesting factor 
is that several people knew of Lucan's plan. Brian Masters wrote in his biography of John Aspinall, Aspinall was certainly not surprised that Lucan might have killed his wife. The missing Earl had confessed to him some weeks earlier that he would like to, and had even gone so far as to tell Aspinall's mother, Lady O, whom he regarded as a substitute mother, that he intended to. She had replied to the effect that he must do whatever he thought was right. The wife of another member of the Claremont set told me Lady O was Lucky's greatest confidant. He was so charming, devastating looking. Lady O knew there was a boat waiting for him on the South Coast. His close friend, Greville Howard, a banker at the time, also knew. Howard was one of the group who were supposed to meet Lucan after the theater and have supper at the Claremont Club on the night of the murder. At the time, Howard was living in the Muse House behind the Lucan House on Lower Belgrave Street. Detective Gehring told me, one night Lucan in his cups said to Greville Howard, what am I going to do? I can't get custody of the children. I've got no more money. I'm in a terrible state. Greville Howard said, when people go broke, the easiest way out is to go bankrupt. When you recover, you start again. Lucan said, I don't want my children to see me in bankruptcy court. Howard said, what do you propose to do? Lucan replied, murder my wife. Howard said, isn't it better for your children to see you in the dock for bankruptcy than murder? Lucan said, they'll never see me in the dock for murder because I'll never get caught. Howard said, you can't kill your wife. He told this to the police at the time of the murder, but when it came to giving evidence at the inquest, he was in the hospital at Neufeld and therefore unavailable. The police searched everywhere for Lucan, including country houses and stately homes, on the slightest rumor. They searched Warwick Castle, the ancestral home of the Earl of Warwick, Lucan's second cousin once removed, and Holcomb Hall, home of the Earl of Leicester. They also searched, not once but three times, the cellar of banker Aggie Clough, a wartime bunker that had been converted into a wine cellar because it was near the coast where Lucan was thought to have vanished. A police alert went out. Any of Lucan's friends who harbor or aid him will be arrested. All these efforts came to naught. Dunn, writing in 1993, has this to say. Nineteen years have passed since that fateful November night, but the story lingers, and people continue to talk about Lucky Lucan. There are still secrets, deep, dark secrets. At the unveiling of the bronze elephant in Bel Air, several of his friends turned up, as well as the man who had screen-tested him for James Bond and the man who received the check from him for a backgammon debt, mailed the day before the murder. In Mexico this year, one of Jimmy Goldsmith's guests told me, We talked about Lucky. Ask any cab driver in London, and he will have an opinion about the case. An American who frequently gambled with Lucan said to me recently, I always suspected that some big Greek squirreled him off somewhere. He could be in South Africa, where his brother, Hugh Bingham, lives, 
and where John Aspinall maintains an estate in Cape Town. Lucan lives in the Stellenbosch area of Cape Town, the wine area on a vineyard, a South African told me. A Londoner who has tracked the case obsessively over the years feels strongly that Lucan is living on the Orkney Islands, off the northeast tip of Scotland. He could be somewhere in South America, or Mexico, or Australia. He even could be in the charming old village of Old Lyme, Connecticut, where a dignified, titled woman has lived in early American anonymity for many years, unknown even to her friends and neighbors as the sister of the notorious Earl of Lucan. I am taking some liberties in this series arc, y'all, and mixing up this Dominic Dunn piece, which is wonderful, against some other research about the story. I am fascinated by his investigation, his work into this case, his research and his writing two decades after the crime. Dominic Dunn will talk to the retired detective who was in charge of the search for Lucan. This next bit has a term in it that I do think becomes key to understanding the rest of the story. We've mentioned it one time already, but so far we've heard this very inclusive set called the Mayfair set, the Claremont set. But Detective Chief Inspector Gehring has a different name, and wowza, it's so good. From Dominic Dunn, in the town of Turnbridge Wells in Kent, where William Thackeray, the author of Vanity Fair, once lived, I met up with Detective Chief Inspector David Gehring, now retired, who was one of the two detectives in charge of the search for the missing Earl. We sat for hours in a local pub. You have to accept that it was Lucan who committed the murder. Of that there is no doubt, he told me. Why wear gloves in your own home? There was blood at the scene, in the house, and in the car. There was also the matted hair of his wife on him and in the car. There were gale winds and stormy weather that night. No ferries ran from New Haven to Dieppe until the next day. One of the theories was that he walked into the sea. Anything that goes into the sea comes back. If it goes out beyond the bay, the sea washes it up further along the coast. When the ferries finally sailed again on Saturday, there was no record of him on board. The number of people were so small, he would have been bound to be seen, especially as the story was in the headlines and on TV. Where are you going to find weights to tie up your body and jump overboard? He didn't have access to a speedboat, nor did he own one of his own at that time, and no boat was stolen from New Haven or the area. If he was going to commit suicide, where was he between 1.15 and 4? The waves were 20 feet high that night. He couldn't have walked into the sea. I started to be of the opinion that someone was telling lies. Do you understand our aristocracy? They are a strange breed. They have this ability. They like to think they're different. I call them the Eaton Mafia. My goodness, how good is that, the Eaton Mafia? Dominic Dunn continues. A lot has been said that they closed ranks. I went back to see Susan Maxwell Scott, who was quite rude to me, 
that I was actually calling her a liar. The policeman who questioned her said, why didn't you report this matter to the police? She said, I thought he would tell the police himself. The policeman said, why didn't you tell your husband? And she said, I didn't think he'd be interested. The policeman said, didn't you read about it in the paper? And she said, I only read the sports page. We're back to Detective Gehring. I formulated my own theory. Yes, he committed the murder. In a panic after the murder, he ran. He planned it so that it would be a perfect murder, but it didn't work out that way. He panicked. He suddenly found himself going to Uckfield, where he had friends. I don't think he ever went to New Haven. Only the car did. He was picked up and went another way. It's not difficult to leave the country. You can leave on a private plane or a yacht without a record. Some of Lucan's friends are fearless. They don't know the meaning of fear. Anything that can upset laws, they seem to enjoy. I believe that Lucan is living somewhere in South America where there are still enclaves of people who are escaping from justice. As he raised a pint of Guinness to his lips, Gehring said, I still live and breathe this case. If he walked in here today, I would not say, did you commit the murder? I would say, I am arresting you. We all know that is never going to happen, but there is one more thread in this particular episode about the immediate collateral damage done within the Eaton Mafia. By now, within our investigation, you know most of these players. We've introduced them all. There are a lot of powerful men in this set. I want to bring up this bit of Dominic Dunn's writing. This actually opens his piece in Vanity Fair, but I'm putting it here to reinforce just what a genius he is. This section is in regard to Jimmy Goldsmith, who will very much play a part of the continuing story here. He is a huge factor in the immediate 1975 subplot of the Lucan story. Dominic Dunn writes, Jimmy says that the most addictive substance in the world is luxury. Jimmy says once you've tasted it, nothing else ever tastes so good. Said my source of information, who must remain nameless, as a great many people in this story must. Jimmy is Sir James Goldsmith, one of the richest men in the world, as well as one of the most complex and mysterious. And no one who knows him wants to be on his wrong side. You want to dislike him because of some of the things he does and the way he acts at times, but it's hard to dislike him. He's good to his friends. If you don't disappoint him or do mean things to him, he's the best friend you could have, continued the same source. One of the people who play an important part in this story, an artist named Dominic Ellis, did disappoint Jimmy. He did the unthinkable. He spoke to a member of the press. He painted a picture of a select group of privileged men, including Jimmy, known as the Claremont set. And he was accused of having sold a vacation photograph taken in Acapulco of an English aristocrat, Lady Annabel Burley, who would later become Lady Annabel Goldsmith, Jimmy's third wife, in a chummy holiday mood with a man who would later be wanted for murder. 
the word went out on Dominic Elwes. He was banished, blackballed, banned. Disastrous consequences followed. I'm bringing this up here. We have met these characters. But the subplot of Dominic Elwes is a little less remembered in the fullness of time, but it is so key to unfolding the story of the disappearing act of Lord Lucan. Dominic Dunn writes about this thread of the investigation. No tragedy is without its subplot, and the subplot of the Lucan tragedy belongs to Dominic Elwes. A painter, Elwes was the son of the late Sir Simon Elwes, a latter-day John Sargent, who painted portraits of the rich and socially prominent. Dominic was less skilled by far than his father, and certainly less successful, but his friends were supportive and posed for him. He painted Lucan in court dress, with robes and a coronet. The Earl of Suffolk posed for him in full hunting regalia. John Aspinall looked pensive in his Elwes portrait, which hangs today in his new gambling club. Elwes had achieved a certain amount of fame in 1957 by eloping with the heiress Tessa Kennedy on a colorful odyssey that took the young lovers from Scotland to Havana to Florida to New York and back to England. From then on, his name was a fixture in society columns. After eight years and three sons, they divorced. Funny and charismatic, Dominic Elwes was a great mimic, a celebrated raconteur, a deft observer of the scene. His friends liked to have him around. He amused them. But his financial circumstances in no way paralleled theirs, which placed him in the position of being the poorest person in a very rich set. Lucan was probably equally poor, but he could still fall back on the family silver, a house in Belgravia, lands in Ireland, and, of course, the earldom, which, tarnished though the title was, would always open all doors for him. Elwes had to sing for his supper, as the saying goes. Amuse me, make me laugh, tell me a funny story. He had to be, quote-unquote, on all the time. Melissa Wyndham, a fashionable London decorator, who was Elwes's girlfriend at the time, said to me, I remember that day so well. I was working in a shop then. Dominic came lurching in. He said the most terrible thing has happened. Then he told me about the murder. Of course, I thought Lucan was the most depressing person ever. He was fantastically gloomy. He may have had a good point, but I certainly didn't spot it. I remember saying to Dominic, Oh God, not dinner with Lucky Lucan again tonight. Dispatched by his rich friends in the role of sleuth, Elwes went to see the battered Countess of Lucan in the hospital. His assignment was to find out what she had told the police. A kindly man by nature, he was shocked at her appearance and the seriousness of her condition. She told him that Lucan had tried to kill her and convinced him of Lucan's guilt. During that visit, she said to him, Which is the mad one now? Not long after that, Elvis was approached by an old Etonian friend, the writer James Fox, 
who had been assigned to do an article on the Lucan case for the London Sunday Times. He asked Elwes to paint a picture of the Claremont set to accompany the article he was writing, and Elwes broke, as always, accepted the commission. The picture, when completed, depicted Lord Lucan, John Aspinall, James Goldsmith, Charles Benson, Stephen Raphael, the Earl of Suffolk, Goldsmith's sidekick Peter West, and Nicholas Soames, the grandson of Winston Churchill. Fox's article, which caused a sensation, was sympathetic to the much-maligned Lady Lucan and depicted the Claremont set in a less-than-favorable light. Accompanying the article were photographs, taken on a vacation in Acapulco, among them the aforementioned picture of Lady Annabel Burley with Lord Lucan. The conventional wisdom was that Elwes had sold the photographs to the Sunday Times. Outrage followed. Vicious letters arrived at Elwes's home, reviling him for his treachery. He was ostracized from the clubs and the group of people he cared most about. This was yet another terrible misunderstanding in the story. Many in the group were, quote, convinced that Dominic had sold the photographs to the Sunday Times, said Melissa Wyndham. He was fantastically short of money, so everyone just assumed he sold the pictures. I know for a fact he absolutely didn't. It came out after his death that the photographs were sold to the Sunday Times by Lady Lucan. Dominic Elvis went into a serious decline. He could not believe what had happened to him. Friends such as Nigel Dempster, the gossip columnist, interceded for him, saying he had not sold the photographs, but to no avail. His drinking already serious increased. He became clumsy, fell and broke his hand. In a newspaper interview, he said, I am sure Lucan is still alive somewhere and hiding in the most desperate circumstances. Why, oh, why doesn't he get in touch with any of us? One weekend in August, Melissa Wyndham was away on vacation and friends took Elvis to the country. He spent most of the time in bed. On the way back to London, he said to the girl who was driving him, I haven't slept a wink all weekend. I need my two and all. I have a standing prescription at a pharmacy in Knightsbridge. I'll call them and tell them you're coming. He was then living in a tiny muse house. He said to her, don't ring the bell, just pop them through the letterbox. She did, and Elvis, who valued his life too little and the worth of his friends too much, took the whole bottle. When Melissa Wyndham returned to London, she telephoned him. There was no answer. She let herself in and found him dead. The late Kenneth Tynan, the great theater critic, liked and admired Dominic Elwes, but bemoaned his pathetic yearning to be accepted by a group Tynan considered worthless. In his eulogy at Elwes's memorial service at the Jesuit Catholic Church of Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception in Mayfair, he said, As a raconteur and mimic, he had the most ebullient and imaginative flair I have ever encountered. Nobody has ever made me rejoice more. Even Peter Ustinov, a superlative talker, is reputed to have said that Dominic 
was the only person to whom he would defer in conversation. He loved the world of wealth and ceremony far more than it deserved, and his politics were those of a romantic monarchist. For him, England's king over the water was the Duke of Windsor. Certain rich people elected him their court jester, and he happily embraced the role, but they never really accepted him, because in the final analysis, he did not have quite enough money. It may have been he set too much store by the favorable opinions of people many of whom were manifestly his inferior. John Aspinall's eulogy for Elwes was less successful. He said of the suicide who had been banned from his club. He resented the fact that many lesser men had found fame through the media and through the newspapers. He knew many people who had achieved much, but he never managed it. His business affairs had never been the success they might have been. He was happiest entertaining a dozen or more close friends with his amusing stories or his wit. But unfortunately, modern society does not repay someone like him. It is the man who can entertain television audiences with his banalities who gets its rewards. As Aspinall came out of the church, he was approached by Tremaine Rod, a relation of Dominic Elwes's, who punched him in the jaw, saying, This is what I think of your bloody speech, Aspinall. Collecting himself and holding his hurt jaw, Aspinall said only, I'm used to dealing with animals. The Daily Mail carried the headline, Right Hook Ends Memorial Service to Man from Lucanset. What a tragedy, this subplot of Dominic Elwes, always on the outside looking in, and his whole Eaton Mafia set is really going to screw him. Elwes learns you don't talk about Lucan. Elwes learns that the hard way. The Eaton Mafia absolutely has their own rules. It is no mystery that Lord Lucan killed poor Sandra Rivet. Let's not forget that there is a dead woman at the center of this night that is largely neglected in this tale, at least from the telling of the Eaton Mafia Claremont Club set. There is a coroner jury trial. In 1976, Lord Lucan is tried in absentia for murder. The manhunt for the disappearing Lucan is spectacular. We're searching country houses. There are reported sightings all over the world. It is an international manhunt. And this begs the bigger question, where is Lord Lucan? What does happen to him? We will explore that question, as well as the unfolding of tales from the rest of our cast of characters in the next episode of Done and Done, where we will conclude this particular investigation. Thanks so much for joining me today, friends. As always, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.